brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello, I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to the Agenda podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the vaccination efforts around the world and how to overcome the challenges on the road to immunity. One of those challenges is so-called vaccine nationalism, when richer countries monopolise doses, leaving many poorer countries in short supply. After the World Health Organization described the inequitable distribution of vaccines as a catastrophic moral failure, I spoke to Dr. Siddhartha Datta, the WHO's Europe advisor for immunization in Europe, to find out the importance of fair sharing. The COVAX mechanism, as as you uh, are aware of, is one of that unprecedented effort made by WHO, along with several other member states and organizations, including the European Union, which ensures this uh, distribution or access to the vaccine to all countries, irrespective of their income level. The low-income countries, the lower-middle-income, the upper-middle-income, and the high-income countries coming together around that concept of ensuring everybody gets an access to this uh, global public good. So it's a matter that we should have that solidarity uh, in in our thoughts, in our actions, in in reality to yeah, ensure we should have that those in our thoughts and our actions. But it's not happening. Wealthy countries are keeping the vaccines to themselves. Yes, uh, but we we have seen that, and we are all seeing this. Uh, you know, vaccine being rolled out in the high income countries much faster than the other uh, low income and low middle income countries. But I think uh, we have also seen the higher income countries coming together, at least in the European Union, as, as you see, their commitment and in it's not only a commitment, but their contribution. More has to be done in this whole process. And there is no doubt into that one for sure. What is the WHO's position on who should get it first inside a population? At this point of time, the demand for the vaccine is not commensurate to the uh, vaccine volume available. And hence, within the limited vaccine volume, which is available to the country, there has to be some prioritization of the population groups. So the first category of, of the population group that should be targeted by the countries are health workers and social care workers who are at high risk or at very high risk of both acquiring and transmitting the uh, infection. And then the second group are the uh, elderly uh, uh, individuals which, uh, you know, in the long-term care facilities or elsewhere who are having uh, comorbidities uh, who, are, who are seen as at high uh, you know, uh, risk of both acquiring the disease and also dying because of the severity of the diseases. This decision was made based on robust modeling uh, done at both at the global level and also at the European regional level. What about those who don't want to be vaccinated, the anti-vaccine movement? How much do you consider that movement a threat to global health? Uh, I think if the population for whom this vaccine is destined to be used, if they're not using this vaccine, uh, you know, this will be uh, a big loss. Uh, well, it'll be more than a big loss. Contain. It's a threat to health, isn't it? Exactly. I think it's, a, you know, infectious diseases, no, uh, no, no borders. And I think if, we, if a population is not being protected, then there is always a chance of, of this disease harboring in the population and also moving into other parts the ministries of health, that the government, including the partners and WHO, need to have 
very transparent communication campaign uh, to the target population group so that they can understand the safety, efficacy, and the quality of vaccines. And if they have any issues around the vaccine, the healthcare professionals should be able or they are equipped to reply to those concerns and the questions that they have. And what has the WHO learned about how to handle a pandemic or an epidemic? Nobody can do this entire thing alone. There has to be inside the country a good inter-stakeholder, uh, several stakeholders coming together because of the mid-sheer scale of this implementation. And outside the country, there has to be uh, you know, um, inter-country collaboration uh, around this entire context of vaccine access and also in terms of implementation. Other part which we have learned, preparedness is key. We cannot cherry pick one or two of the areas and say that we are ready. We have to be ready in this entire COVID-19 vaccination as one capsule of the immunization system performance in a country. Third part I would say is that any investment done in the COVID-19 vaccine deployment and vaccination should have a bearing uh, in strengthening and having a resilient immunization system of tomorrow. China set itself the ambitious target of inoculating 50 million high-priority people before the end of its Lunar New Year holiday. I spoke to Chen Jun, former adjunct professor of finance at Johns Hopkins University. He's been working with the medical sector to try and pave a path out of the pandemic. Our vaccination model is uh, targeted to forecast at what time uh, given certain parameters like the effectiveness of a uh, uh, vaccine, like the willingness to be vaccinated of the general population, and how fast can the vaccine be deployed, like uh, health workers, uh, urban people, and uh, rural people, and uh, different age group, uh, they have different priorities. So after considering all these uh, constraints, we simulate how the population will be vaccinated and how fast can the herd immunity be achieved? And uh, then we summarize and what time uh, the world is okay to reopen or each country uh, is okay to reopen to normal life and uh, a business travel and uh, transportation of goods yeah. and people can be resumed. Why do you think your model is more effective than the models being used in Europe and uh, the US? Well, actually, uh, I cannot say that it's more uh, effective. It's basically, it's more realistic. Uh, Basically, we take into different uh, parameters, uh, like what I mentioned, uh, the manufacturing capacity, uh, the efficiency of the government, how they apply these uh, vaccines, and uh, how many people are willing to take the the vaccines. Uh, And also, you know, what is the effectiveness? Uh, Like, we have seen the numbers of effectiveness of the vaccines range between the uh, 60% to 95%. So our model is very uh, flexible. How important is the vaccination rate to your forecast? Uh, It is uh, one of the most important uh, parameters in our model. So vaccination rate, what we mean is uh, how efficient can the government and uh, health workers uh, can deliver or vaccinate people. Uh, according to Pfizer and Moderna and also some uh, other manufacturers, including China's uh, Sinopharm and Sinovac, 
the effectiveness is around 8% to 90%, uh, which is uh, pretty high. And also we found that the willingness to take to be vaccinated is also high, uh, at least in uh, some of the European countries. Uh, in the United States, the willingness to take the vaccine is relatively low because if you have less than 50% of the population willing to be vaccinated, you have to wait until, you know, probably 20% of the population to be infected to get into a certain level, for example, 70% of herd immunity. So that will take some time. Have you any data as yet as to the effectiveness of each vaccine? There's the numbers that ranges from uh, 60% to uh, 95%. Uh, and uh, the number could be different for different age groups. We have a different trial uh, experiment in different countries. Uh, for example, uh, in the, uh, there's a new vaccine coming out uh, from Johnson Johnson. And uh, the overall vaccine uh, effectiveness is uh, 66% in the U- US, is uh, 72%. In South Africa, where uh, the new variant of the uh, virus, uh, it's uh, 70, uh, 57%. In Latin America, it's uh, 66%. So you can see that there is some um, range of the reported effectiveness of this vaccine. But overall, the vaccine effecting level is relatively high compared to other vaccines like the uh, general flu vaccine. And so the effectiveness of the the current form of this uh, virus is not a big concern right now. Uh, the bigger concern is uh, how are people willing to be vaccinated and how fast the government uh, can deploy this vaccine. Okay, we've uh, got yeah. two runners in this race. We've got the virus and we've got the vaccination program. One pulls ahead mm-hmm. of the other sometimes, but who's going to win that race? Well, right now, um, basically, even with some uh, variant of this virus uh, in different countries, like in South Africa, uh, the vaccine still shows relatively high effectiveness. Uh, but we are definitely worried. But I believe uh, with the help of the researchers in vaccines, uh, with uh, the public health professionals and with effective uh administration of the vaccine, uh, I think definitely we are going to win this uh, uh, war against uh, this pandemic. Israel has been vaccinating its citizens at a rate faster than anywhere else in the world. It started with older people, but now even teenagers are receiving the jab. I asked Nathan Jeffe, health correspondent for the Times of Israel, about the country's speedy strategy. This has gone with turbo speed. I don't think anybody expected things to be happening this fast. I don't think anybody expected people to be racing along to the vaccination centres. There was concerns as to whether people would be hesitant. But the snowball effect has been absolutely immense. I've been at vaccination centres with lines, with queues that go for hundreds of metres. And what is Israel doing that other countries are not Uh, in terms of not just speed, but anything else? The companies realise that by getting lots of vaccines to Israel, they're going to get really good data really quickly showing how effective these vaccines are. So that's a really important element, really strong supply. And also there's the health system. The health system kind of has the best of all worlds because it's not like America. It's not private. There's free health care for everybody. 
At the same time, it's not like Britain, where it's centralized. Rather, you have four health organizations. Everybody picks one. Everybody belongs to one. And while they're publicly funded, they're all competing with each other to be the best. And that has been a major factor in how they're managing to do this so efficiently, because they're competing against each other in terms of speed. One question many governments are struggling with is who should get the jab first. Israel has taken the decision to vaccinate the elderly. Uh, how did they arrive at that? Well, there is a bit of a discussion because on the one hand, there is a logic to vaccinating the spreaders, vaccinating perhaps younger people who are going to be spreading more infection. On the other hand, it is the elderly who are ending up in hospital. And this was the logic here. If the pandemic strategy is mainly about keeping the healthcare system running, you start off with the elderly to protect them. And what we've seen in the last few days is remarkable results from this. So one of the healthcare organizations has found that within just three weeks of the first shot, even before the second shot, there is a 60 plus percent reduction in the number of elderly people being hospitalized. So certainly remarkable results there, and it seems to be the right strategy. I see that the Weizmann Institute believes that uh, COVID-19 deaths in Israel could start tapering off in early March. Would you say that's optimistic or realistic? I think that is realistic, but everything depends at the moment on these variants. Everything depends on whether these variants that are coming into the country spread fast and have more virulence in terms of the effect that they have on people's health. And Israel has now taken the unprecedented step of actually closing the airport to almost all commercial flights out of worry about these variants. If the variants can be controlled, I think that optimistic scenario outlined by those researchers you mentioned is realistic. How would you describe how the government has reacted to COVID-19? So there has been actually quite a lot of criticism of the government for really um, doing a great first effort and then actually losing control of things a little bit. So really people have very mixed feelings about the response here. And I would actually say that any particular day we wake up here and watching the news is just an emotional roller coaster because one minute we're being told, hey, Israel is on the way out of this because we're leading everyone on vaccination. The next minute we're being told we need to close the airport because we're so worried about these variants spreading around everybody. So it's really a mixed bag. Even a campaign as efficient as Israel's does also still leave many unjabbed, unvaccinated, doesn't it? So that must be a real cause of concern. Absolutely. I mean, there is no approval of the vaccines for under 16s as yet. And Israel has a very young society, a lot of under 16 year olds here. And if they're not being vaccinated, the question is, can we get to herd immunity? Is that possible? Now, on old calculations, it would seem that you can. We would hope that you can. But again, the variants have brought a whole question of unknown into this. So that might actually be changing as well. And then there is the whole issue of the Palestinians and the slow vaccination amongst Palestinians and the question of whether infection could come in from Palestinians to unvaccinated Israelis, which is a major concern too. Right at the beginning of the vaccination programme, the government texted everybody, didn't it? 
uh, to say, come in and have a, a jab. That obviously worked. Yeah, texted all of the elderly, and I was very skeptical at the time. I know how long it can take my parents to respond to an electronic message. I was very skeptical. <laughs> Will the elderly receiving text messages call up and get their appointments? And I was absolutely staggered by the response. The phone lines melted down, and really, people, as soon as they got the phone lines working again, people were calling in booking their appointments, and this proved amazingly effective because instead of people just getting cards through their door, this created actually an amazing momentum where people were focused on, hey, can I get my appointment? When can I get my appointment? And I think that was actually an element behind this snowball effect as well. So, yeah, that proved very effective. Vaccines need to be kept at cold temperatures. This makes them notoriously difficult to transport to the more remote parts of the world, leaving millions of people without life-saving inoculations. Thankfully, a team of scientists in the UK, led by Dr. Asil Sadbaya from the University of Bath, have found a way of preventing warmed-up vaccines from degrading. I asked her how this could help in the global fight against the virus. Vaccine called chain um, means that uh, as soon as vaccine is produced, it's being put in the refrigerator. So it has to be at uh, 2 to 8 degrees centigrade in that uh, regime. And then from then on, it's, it's, we maintain that temperature. So the vaccine is kept constantly at that temperature. So, for example, if the vaccine is being transported from the uh, manufacturing facility to a storage facility somewhere, when it's being flown from one country to another, all the way through, it has to be refrigerated and it has to maintain the same temperature. If there is a problem with the temperature, if, for example, um, that fridge breaks down or um, if we don't have electricity for some time, then obviously we see the temperature fluctuations and this is what affects the vaccines. And this is when we get vaccines spoiling, unfortunately. Is your method of thermal stabilization compatible with the current COVID-19 vaccines? This is a very good question we're trying to answer at the moment. Uh, we don't know yet. That would be the uh, short answer to your question. But we are trying to find out as quickly as possible because obviously there is an urgency to, uh, to answer this question. We think that uh, more traditional vaccines, so for example, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, um, might be more compatible. So majority of the traditional vaccines have to be kept at 2 to 8 degrees centigrade. The Oxford-AstraZeneca COVID vaccine is also needs to be refrigerated, needs to be kept at those temperatures. But with what we know from um, Pfizer uh, and uh, from Moderna is that those two vaccines uh, need to be kept at even lower temperatures. So, for example, Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccine needs to be kept at minus 70 centigrade. Moderna needs minus 20 centigrade. These are the kind of temperatures which are hard to maintain all the way through uh, in order to inoculate people, uh, especially very hard in developing countries. So, for example, I have recently been in contact with one country where uh, they were saying that there is absolutely no equipment to maintain minus 70 centigrade. So they're, they're really scratching their heads at how they're going to be uh, inoculating people in the future if they were to receive uh, Pfizer uh, COVID vaccine through COVAX. So which country was that? 
this is the country where I was born, Kyrgyzstan. Um, it's in Central Asia. And uh, they obviously have an agreement with COVAX to receive the vaccines. And um, uh, they already have been uh, in talks about uh, getting this vaccine. But at the moment, they're really struggling to find money to buy the freezers to maintain the minus 70 centigrade. But I'm hoping that uh, will uh, happen soon. Well, uh, so do we. But does that apply to many other countries as well? Absolutely. In many other countries, um, you you may have the, uh, for example, if you have the equipment, you may not have um, constant supply of electricity. So that's another problem. Also, you need to have the infrastructure to be able to uh, send around those refrigerators on the trucks. So you need to have roads um, working. And also you need to have staff trained who actually can uh, can do and maintain all of those temperatures properly. So there's quite it's quite a big logistical undertaking to 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 inoculate um, people within a specific country. Do those logistical challenges uh, apply to potentially not getting a second jab after the first? This is a very contentious um question at the moment. So obviously, you've, you've seen that uh, in UK, um, the government has said that they will be uh, giving majority of the population the first job, and they will delay the second job for um, up to three months, or, or maybe more in some places, depending on how many vaccines we will have. Um, this is a question which a lot of us are still trying to get our head around, because uh, obviously, all the data we have is for the 21-day uh, delay for the second jab. We don't have any data for longer periods, so we don't know what's going to happen after this. At the moment, the assumption is that the immunity will continue, and then with the second jab, uh, it will still work the same way. And this is what obviously we're hoping for, but we don't know. That's, That's the problem. And how can you tell, or how could a country, or how do medical uh, staff tell if a vaccine has in fact spoiled during transportation? With some of the vaccines, uh, for example, DTP vaccine, diphtheria, tetanus, pitasis vaccine, yeah, we actually could could tell from just looking at it because in a lot of the times it would spoil. When it would spoil, it would also change um, the, its appearance, so we could actually see it. Unfortunately, that's not the case for all of them. So with some of the other vaccines, they can spoil without showing any physical change in their appearance. I don't want to scare anybody here because um, I still want people to be vaccinated. Um, and uh, even with uh, even with uh, decreased um, efficacy, it's still better to have some protection than not to have any. It should not deter people from vaccination. This is the main thing. And that's it for another edition of the podcast. Remember to subscribe to our show wherever you find your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. So if you have time, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. Remember, you can also find us on CGTN Europe, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. Tune in again next week when we'll have an Ask the Agenda special where we'll be putting your vaccine questions to Dr. Jerome Kim from the International Vaccine Institute.
the most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge, and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.